as we mentioned a few different times, today is going to mark our beginning in a, a new sermon series that will take us through summer in the book of First Peter. We're going to start today, and then we're going to immediately take a break next week. <laughs> I will be gone. I'll be in Alberta, and we have Arlie Lowen coming to speak from Blumenort Community Church. Uh, he has uh, been a long-time missionary to uh, Afghanistan, and he's going to come and preach on how we can welcome those uh, foreign to Canada into our nation and into our community. And that's going to be wonderful timing because we are a group, of, a part of a group of churches that are helping support some refugee families that should be coming any week or any month now. So we can look forward to that. But as we dig into First Peter, we, we need to kind of get our, our bearings and get some of the background. And what I love about the book of First Peter is it tells us right away who wrote it. We don't have to have any guesswork. It says right in First Peter 1, 1, is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Simple, sweet, straightforward. One of the reasons why I wanted to choose and focus on First Peter over the course of summer is because we've learned a lot about the Apostle Peter during our time together in the first half of the book of Acts. And we've read a lot of these stories of the early church, many that involved Peter as he was one of the main characters. And so I want us to recall all of these stories that we've heard so that it would give us some of the spirit of, of the man behind the letter. So, so Peter was there on the day of Pentecost where they were, were pre, he was praying along with the other disciples and then the Holy Spirit descended upon them and filled them as of tongues of fire. And then he preached a sermon and saw 3,000 people come to follow Jesus on that day. And he continued to preach the good news of Jesus and then was brought on trial before the Sanhedrin and told them no more of that. And he says, I can't help but tell of what I have seen and experienced. I have to preach in the name of Jesus. Peter was a devout Jew, a Messianic Jew, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah for God's chosen people. And it took a vision from God and a visit from a holy Gentile, Cornelius, where God proved that the good news of Jesus was not limited to the Jews, but was for the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit descended on them and abided in them and filled them as well. And the last we saw of Peter, he was in prison. And Herod was planning to put him to death. And then it was through the prayers of God's people that there was a miraculous escape from prison. And then Peter exits that prison. And he goes and he sees the people who didn't believe God actually rescued him. And then he fades from view. We don't see him in Acts very much. He pops up a little bit in the Jerusalem council. But by and large, he doesn't stay in Jerusalem to lead the church. That responsibility was for James, the brother of Jesus. Peter goes elsewhere. He keeps a low profile. He really has to go in hiding because there is now a bounty and a price on his head as one of the leaders of the church. He goes and he travels. We don't know what happens to him, but we do know that he writes this book, this letter. Peter's not the only one that encounters some difficulty and maybe doesn't have things go as planned. Persecution of the church is ramped up. This letter comes a number of years after what we read in Acts. And the church is largely forced to meet in secret and underground, to meet in homes, and again, to keep their head down for fear of persecution of all sorts. Not just from the Jewish powers that be, but now the very Roman Empire and the political powers that have the, uh, the authority to put them to death. And so as Peter and the church are keeping a low profile, suffering becomes a very key and significant part of their existence. It's just now a part of their everyday life. And, and we have a hard time getting into that mindset because it's not often part of our everyday experience. But that is the backdrop of which this letter is written. So with that in mind, 
Let's read 1 Peter 1, 1 to 9, and then we'll continue to learn from the text together. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So what can we learn from that introductory address, that one or two big long run-on sentences that Peter jam-packs all these ideas with? Well, that's the business we're going to be about for the rest of our time here this morning. And I think what Peter is saying at the outset is he is addressing his audience. He says something, not just to, to let us know who he's writing to, but he says something significant about the identity of who we are as followers of Christ. I would summarize it this way. Peter says, when you follow Jesus, you are chosen exiles. You are chosen exiles. Remember those first few verses. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. We are chosen exiles. Now, as we work through this letter, we need to remember that, that Peter is a Jew through and through. He is a, a Jew that believes Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, and that has now fulfilled all of God's promises. But he is deeply steeped in Hebrew scripture and the Old Covenant. And so we will find many, many different Old Testament references in his letter as he makes his points to his people. So in order for us to understand Peter properly, we need to draw on our knowledge of the Old Testament. And that starts right away. So he says, now we are the elect exiles of the dispersion. That's one great example. What does it mean to be an elect or chosen exile? When you hear that word elect, we can automatically go to this idea of, or this argument of, predestination versus free will. We're brought right there. We have all these messy questions like, does God choose us or do we choose him? Does he override our free will? Is free will just an illusion? And none of these questions, I, I believe, are at the forefront of Peter's mind when he uses that word. Now, don't get me wrong. Peter is certainly emphasizing God's initiative and his choice in this address and in this letter. He says, we are the elect chosen exiles, and we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so, yes, in a, in a certain sense, Peter is making it known that God has taken the first step. That is his initiative. It is his action that he has chosen us according to the foreknowledge that he and he alone has. But more to the point, this is not an argument about God's sovereign choice versus our individual free will. This is not really to do with us as individuals at all. 
Peter is not addressing an individual. He's addressing a group of people. He says, you are the chosen or elect exiles of the dispersion. You are that group. We are the chosen people of God. This is another instance where our Old Testament reference can come in handy. Listen to the way that the people of God have always been described. Going back to a passage like Deuteronomy 7, 6, where it says, For you, to Israel, are a people holy to the Lord our God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So when when Peter says you are an elect exile, he says that we are now the chosen people of God together, corporately. God has chosen the church. And just as Israel was God's elect, his chosen people, to be a light to the nations, now this becomes true for the church of Jesus Christ. We are the chosen people of God, and we are now the light of the nations with the good news of Jesus. We've been grafted into the promise to be God's chosen people. And not only are we chosen, but we are also exiles in this dispersion. The dispersion was a common term that used to talk about how the Jews were no longer in their holy land exclusively, but now had been dispersed across all the Roman Empire. It was common to talk about as the dispersion of the Jews. And Peter adopts this distinction to also include the scattered church. And Peter gives us a sense of that, but then James does the same thing and makes it even more clear in his address in James 1, where he says, it's James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who's writing that letter. And he says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James was not writing to the literal 12 tribes of Israel, but he, like Peter, were using this dispersion of God's chosen people to now include the church of Jesus Christ. They are now the chosen people of God. And whereas the Jews in the church were exiled and dispersed among different geographical regions, there is something much deeper going on here. Peter's not talking about the exiles just meaning uh, the group of churches that were in Asia Minor that were listed here geographically. No, the focus here instead is spiritual. Peter is teaching that as believers in Christ, we are exiles from our heavenly home. That no matter where on this earth we find ourselves, we never truly belong here. We are sojourners. We're just passing through. We're on our way to somewhere where we truly can call home. This world is not our home. We're here but for a short temporary time. So if it is true that as followers of Christ we are chosen exiles, then it really begs us to ask this question. If we are chosen exiles, then, then where is our home? Where is your home? How do you live your life? Where do your attitudes and your actions and priorities show where you truly feel like you belong? Because there is a warning in here, and the warning is that this world will not give you what you long for. That true peace, that true rest, that true fulfillment. You can wander everywhere on this earth, and you will never find exactly what you need. Now, the early church found this out through their persecution and the suffering. It's a point that we can easily ignore because for a time, based on the wealth and the affluence and the comforts that are available to us, we can trick ourselves into thinking, I have what I need. But that will never truly be true for us. But when we believe and when we act and when we trust that our citizenship is in heaven, 
we have a greater fulfillment awaiting for us. This is a point that's not just in the teaching of Peter, but also in Paul. In his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, he says to those who do not follow Christ, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. For those who believe earth is home. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is something greater than this world can provide. And Peter goes on to explain what this hope looks like. He says in 1 Peter 1, not only are we chosen exiles, we are the people of God sojourning in this place on earth that we do not truly belong, but we have a certain hope. We have a living hope. That is something that's explained to us in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so Emma did ask me, she's like, okay, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, well, uh, I'm going to call it Living Hope. So I know one song for sure we should probably be singing. That one was made easy. But that really is that focal point. That is, that is everything else around this, this the part of the letter, the sermon. It really centers around the fact that in Jesus Christ, we have a living hope. Now, first notice again Peter's emphasis on God's initiative and his activity. He doesn't say, you happen to be born again. You chose to be born again. It says, God has caused us to be born again. This is something God has done for us. It is his action and his activity, not something that we can achieve on our own. What has he caused us to do? He caused us to be born again, which should immediately bring our minds and our thoughts back to Jesus and his interaction with Nicodemus in John 3, in which he confuses the Pharisee by saying, you must be born again. Okay, not a physical rebirth, but a spiritual rebirth. That in Jesus, what used to be our old selves dies with him. And he changes and transforms us and gives us new life. We are a new creation in him. Truly, we are born again. It defines, redefines who we are. But we are born again into a specific type of hope, a living hope. And the reason Peter can call this hope a living hope is because Jesus is alive. It is only possible for us to have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so when we mark these huge important parts of the story of Jesus, we need to remember them all. We, 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 at Christmas time, we, we say, yes, Jesus took on flesh and he entered our world, God with us. And then on Good Friday, yes, we, we acknowledge and celebrate and, and thank Jesus for dying on the cross for forgiveness of our sins. But, but our eternal hope needed, required that Easter morning when Jesus rose again from the grave and conquered death and he is alive today. We have a living hope because Jesus is alive. We do not love, trust, believe, or follow a historical figure who was once alive but is now dead and gone. Someone who could have set a good example, left a positive legacy, and had many good teachings. That is not who Jesus is. We love, trust, believe, and follow a Christ who has conquered death and offers us the ability right here, right now, to have an active, living relationship with him because our God is not dead. He is alive. And because he is alive, we have a living hope. When I was a youth pastor, I loved taking our senior youth through different Bible studies. And we did one study through different world religions. And as we 
dug a little deeper into what other religions believe, there soon became a few markers that set Christianity apart and unique from, from the way that other religions think and believe and act. And, and the one major thing that I could never get over is the fact that in every other religion, the, the founder of that religion is dead and gone. So you've got Muhammad who founded Islam. And he apparently had these um, uh, interactions with an angel and had all this revelation from God, and he founded a huge religion. He's dead, and he's gone. And then you've got Joseph Smith, who started Mormonism, and he looked into some top hats and also came up with some ideas. And I'm not going to stay there for very long. That's what happened. And uh, you know what? He also got martyred for his faith, and now he is dead and gone. And you have the Buddha, who started, what was the religion? Oh, yeah, Buddhism. And uh, he started Buddhism, and he had all these great teachings about how to reach enlightenment, and Buddha is dead gone. And there is only Jesus Christ who is alive today and offers a living hope. Peter goes on to describe the nature of the living hope, and he describes it as our eternal inheritance. And I love verse 4. He says, we have this living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What a promise. What a hope that we have. Now remember, Peter is using an Old Testament lens with his teaching. So if we are the chosen people of God who are wandering as exiles, then our inheritance would be what? Well, the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, wandered as exiles until they reached the promised land. And in the Old Testament, the promised land was their inheritance. Each tribe had an inheritance as a plot of the promised land. And so now we are mirrored as the church. Our journey also brings us as the chosen people of God, wandering as exiles, awaiting that future inheritance, which will be our own promised land. Unfortunately for Israel, the promised land on this earth always let them down. They couldn't keep it. It didn't end up being the promise that they hoped it would be. It could not fulfill. But the inheritance that we have in Christ cannot be taken away. It is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. A number of years ago, I was dating this girl named Karen, and I woke up one day, and I knew, I knew, I just woke up and immediately knew I had to ask her to marry me before she came to her senses. And so I got up and showered, and I immediately went to the mall to try to find an engagement ring. And so this is, I, I was just, I needed to do this. And I went to the mall. I didn't tell anybody. And I was so terrified that somebody would see me in the mall. I felt so exposed in the jewelry store. And so I was trying to talk to this person. And I kept looking around me. And she said, honey, if you look over your shoulder one more time, I'm not helping you anymore. I was like, fine, I'm with you. Let's just forget it. Okay, what do I need to know? And then she taught me about the four C's of diamonds. Have you guys ever, anyone else heard of the four C's of diamonds? Yeah? Anyone else learn about the four seeds of diamonds for the first time looking for an engagement ring? Anyone else? Absolutely. So when you're looking for a diamond, you're supposed to find a diamond that has cut, color, clarity, and carrot. And the cut means it's cut in such a perfect geometrical way that it allows the, ma- the most light to be reflected. It will make a more shiny and appealing diamond. The color well, needs to be colorless instead of faded with a little tinge of yellow. And the clarity needs to be flawless instead of having any imperfections. And carrot just means a big old diamond, how big the diamond is. And so I learned about this, and I bought the best diamond that money... 
No, I bought the best diamond that a recent Bible school graduate could afford to buy. And Karen said yes, and I didn't even have to return it. I learned that about diamonds. And so what I love about the way that Peter describes our perfect inheritance is much the same way. There are certain characteristics that are true about our inheritance that are not true about anything else. The inheritance we have in Christ is undefiled. It is perfectly flawless. There is no problem or flaw or mistake or imperfection in the inheritance that we have. It is unfading. It is perfect in cut and in color. It is full of light and nothing can ever make it any less so. And it is imperishable because even though diamonds will not last forever, despite what the companies will say on their advertisements on TV, our hope in Jesus does. It will never fade. It will never become impure and it will never perish. It's the only hope that can offer those things. We have a living hope. That is the truth Peter teaches us. The question it begs us to ask is this, where is your treasure? Because Peter readily points out that our earthly inheritance will never be enough. Everything that we, 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 we put stock into and treasure will, will disappoint and will fade away. But the living hope of Jesus, our eternal inher- inheritance, will not fade. And it needs to be the place where we have our treasure. Jesus himself teaches this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And our treasure is pure, unfading, imperishable, and it's being kept in heaven for you through the power of God. Most of the focus of the beginning of this letter has rightfully been placed on God's saving activity. He chooses his people according to his foreknowledge. He causes us to be born again. He raised Jesus from the dead. He keeps our eternal inheritance in heaven, and he guards it during difficult times, which we learn in verse 5. And what do we say? We need to acknowledge right from the beginning that salvation is God's work, and it's not our own. You can't earn it. You can't unearn it. It is God's work, not ours. Peter also does describe how we respond to this work of God, our salvation, And that is through faith. And so the third and final lesson we bring out of our passage is that we live by faith. Let me remind you what verses 5 to 7 said. We who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we live by faith, specifically by relying on our faith during difficult times, which again is something that Peter's initial audience needed to hear. Difficulty, suffering, persecution, that was just part of their everyday life. Faith was incredibly important. And during difficult times, not only does our faith help sustain us, but those very trials that seem to be a threat are what strengthen our faith and refine it. 
So Peter is using another analogy. And in ancient times, if you were to refine gold and take away any impurities from it so that it would be pure, you would heat up this gold until it was molten liquid. And then everything that was not gold, all of those impurities would rise to the top and they would scrape them away. And then when it solidified again, it would be as close as they could get to pure gold. So Peter is saying, don't be surprised when these difficult times come. Don't even necessarily seek to avoid them. Don't be intimidated by them. Realize that God in his perfect salvation plan for you can use these things to test and refine your faith. Not just to tell if it's genuine, but to create it to be more and more genuine each and every time. This is another account in which James and Peter are of a like mind. If we keep reading James's initial address in his letter, we read this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So Peter calls our trials a temporary inconvenience. James calls them pure joy, but the result is the same, a genuine, steadfast, tested faith in Jesus Christ, who is our living hope and our eternal inheritance. And so what then does this genuine, steadfast faith look like? It looks like love. Here are our final two key verses this morning. It says, Though you have not seen him, being Jesus, you love him. Though you, have not, you do not see him now, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though you do not see him, you love him. And so if it is indeed true that we are to live by faith, it begs us to ask this follow-up question. Where is your love? Where is your love? Is it with Jesus? Is it with yourself? Is it with others and the things of this world? We need to know where our love is because it shows us where our faith is also. Peter recognizes that he is writing to a generation of Christ followers who didn't have the privilege that he had to walk and talk with Jesus. I mean, he knew Jesus. He saw him. He touched him. He learned from him. He befriended him. He is writing to a church that's now been planted and and, and more than likely none of them have ever met Jesus. And yet they believe in him anyway. They love him anyway. Something that Christ himself anticipated right after he rose again from the dead He appeared to the disciples, and they believed that he was resurrected. And he appeared to all his disciples except for Thomas. Poor old Thomas. He was just absent that day, and then all of a sudden he gets this bad rap of being doubting Thomas because he says, I want the same privilege everyone else had. I want to see Jesus alive so I can believe. And Jesus gives him what he asks for in John 20, verse 27 to 29. Christ says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, and I I promise you, I firmly believe that Peter is remembering this when he writes this letter to his audience. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's true of the early church in 1 Peter, and it's true of us today. We have not seen Christ, and yet we believe in him. 
And that might seem fantastical to some of you who perhaps are skeptical of this faith. But I would point out that we believe in all sorts of things we haven't seen. That's not just true of Jesus and our faith in him. So Karen mentioned we have family visiting from Australia. We haven't seen them for four years. And according to them, they've gone to this place called Australia. They've gone to this place that's across the world, so many different time zones. It's, it's in a different hemisphere, so the, 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 the winters are, are summer, and summer is winter, and they see different stars in the sky, and, uh, and they use different money, and, and, and they have uh, both a continent and a country, and all sorts of weird animals that carry their young in pouches, and they talk differently so that when my brother-in-law comes back to visit, he calls everyone in the restaurant mate, right? So apparently there's a thing that's Australia, and I'm supposed to believe that something that weird exists. I've never been there. I've never seen it. They seem like a trustworthy sort. I guess I will just have to take their word for it. How do we know that Australia exists? How do we know that anything we have not seen and experienced ourselves is true? We constantly make judgment calls to believe in things that we have not seen. But the greatest and most important call is to believe in Jesus. And not just believe, according to Peter. They don't just believe in him. They don't just trust him. They love the one that they haven't seen. And that's possible because even though they haven't seen Jesus, they've experienced him because he is alive. He is our living hope. He loves you unconditionally and offers you a living hope and eternal inheritance that will never fade. And so the last question that begs to be asked before we respond in worship is this. Where is your belief? Let's pray. Father God, we have been reminded of all that you have done for us. You have chosen us. You have died for us. You have risen again for us. You guard our inheritance. You cause us to be born again. We deserve none of that. And then yet out of your boundless, unfailing, unconditional love for us, you have chosen to do all those things. God, may we respond by living in faith, by loving you even though we haven't seen you, and by placing our home and our treasure into a place that will never fade. God, I pray that if there is any here today that have yet to take a step of faith or belief in you, that today would be that first step on a journey towards that living hope. We pray this in your name. Amen.